You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Dr. Yulia Sandermiskaya, head of Cognitive Computing and Life Sciences Research Center at Zurich University of Applied Sciences. You'll find out about the role that dynamical systems theory plays in robotics, her work at Intel, and her ambitious goals in brain-inspired vision. But first, today's EE Times Current Highlights. GF contract meets high mix of DOD needs, expert says. Global Foundry's renewed contract with the U.S. Department of Defense provides a, quote, high mix of technologies, experts say, yet still leaves a gap for more chip makers to fill. New Current hears call for NFC power in headset tech. New Current's latest Poly Voyager Surround 85 UC Bluetooth headset weighs less than Apple's AirPods Max, offers as many as 21 hours of talk time, and provides more flexibility in industrial design. Novel memory architecture bolsters security. BlueShift Memory's proprietary high-speed memory architecture is pairing with encryption capabilities to help counter threats from quantum computing. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sonny is talking robots with Dr. Yulia Sandamirskaya from Zurich University of Applied Sciences. After the interview, we will be talking to Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Thanks, Julia. Julia became a pivotal figure in the neuromorphic community in Europe, having had roles both at Intel and the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich. She's collaborated with many key researchers in the field through her work as application research lead working with Intel's Luigi technology, as well as developing many projects in her own team. There are links to her work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I sat down with Yulia at the Institute of Neuroinformatics when she was dropping off Kit to go to this year's Telluride Neuromorphic Cognition Engineering Workshop. Yulia Sandemerskaya, welcome to Brains and Machines. I want to start, as I always do, by asking you, what's your technical background? How did you get involved with this field? Um, thank you, Sandy. It's my pleasure and honor to be on this podcast. My technical background started in Minsk with studies of physics. I did my diploma degree there and then moved to Germany as an exchange student first, and then finished my master's and did my PhD in Germany. My master's was in biophysics. As a physicist, I always had interest in biological systems as the most interesting ones. And I ran some protein dynamic simulations at that time. So that was also my acquaintance with computational biological sciences. And for my PhD, I moved in a neighboring institute uh, in Bochum, um, which is called Institute of Neuroinformatics. And those were like gurus. They had big respect in the whole university. It was a very interdisciplinary institute and they were doing research from neuroscience, 
wet neuroscience, experimental neuroscience, to theoretical, computational neuroscience and cognitive science, to robotics and neuronal network, artificial intelligence, what we call artificial intelligence today. They just called it neural networks and machine learning at that time. So I think my scientific and research maturation happened at that institute in this extremely interdisciplinary environment, the exciting people coming over every second week. So you worked with Gregor Schoener at Bauckham. Can you talk about the work you did with him? Sure. Yeah, so Gregor Schoener was my PhD supervisor. He was leading a group that was called Embodied Cognition. So he, as a theoretician, was interested into origins of higher level cognition in humans, how our memory works, how language works, how our thinking works, and, and grounding models of that in what, what he called embodiment, so in, in sensory motor processes. And he was working closely with developmental psychologists who study emergence of cognition in babies and doing that in a very rigorous mathematical way. So they would run experiments and then they would develop models, mathematical models, dynamical systems models, attractor dynamics in particular, that explain uh, emergence of cognitive processes uh, in babies. And then our group was applying these models into robots because it's embodied cognition. So if we just simulate the model on the computer, it's not enough to really test its validity in a closed sensory motor loop. So we would implement these models in a closed sensory motor loop in the robot. So my PhD was in this group between the two groups of theory of embodied cognition and robotics. And my particular bit in this story was seeing how sequences can be represented in attractor dynamics. Attractors are stable states of dynamics. Dynamics usually explains how some system evolves over time. So you can imagine a flow over time, flow of the state variable. And in some systems, there exist stable states where the system converges to some static state. It doesn't move anymore. And these states are called attractors. So they're just stable states of the dynamic variables describing the system. So if some perturbations kick the system out of this state, the forces in the system will drag it back into the attractor. So it attracts the state system. And these states, they not always correspond to being static, not moving. Because if you define your attractor in velocity space, then your attractor corresponds to moving with a certain speed in a certain direction. And, and the theory of attractor dynamics says that you know, our neuronal dynamics is noisy, chaotic, it's constantly moving. But we have to fixate and focus on certain things once in a while. So when we perceive an object, we have to create a representation of this object in our minds that lasts for some time. And attractor dynamics says that your dynamics needs to be able to create attractor over the state. You know, I'm perceiving red apple in a certain location and stabilize this state. For people who aren't used to these continuous systems, because we're both physicists, so they're natural for us, one way to think of this is that what's going on in the brain is almost like the weather, right? It's something that's dynamically, continuously changing over time. And an attractor could be like a storm that's settled in one place for a little while and isn't moving just as a visual image sits with us for a while before we act on it. Would that be broadly a good analogy? That's a nice analogy. So the attractor is the stable whirlpool, if you want, that's created. And, and in theory, mathematically, it's created forever. So if you're an attractor, nothing will kick you out of this attractor. And, and my contribution during the PhD was to create a system that can destroy attractors so that you can move on to the next action, next thought, next uh, percept. So that was the sequence uh, generating model. 
It also had the component of learning sequences, like learning different behaviors, different skills, sequences of actions, sequences of cognitive acts, and, and then also organizing behavior in time in sequences of actions. So that, and the sequences can be fixed, like in a dance. When you dial a telephone number, there's a fixed sequence, or they can be flexible. When you're making a coffee, then the order of actions can differ depending on the context, on the situation which you're in. So we've done different types of sequences, learning different types of sequences using reinforcement learning, using learning by observation or imitation. So we also did action parsing. This is observing someone performing action sequences and then parsing them into individual actions. So understanding this whole temporal and sequential nature um, of behavior. So because you're working on these large mathematically complex dynamical systems in your PhD, this is what gets you frustrated with conventional computers. Am I right? Correct. So at that time, we had an ambition to develop these dynamics um, using neuronal networks, neuronal principles. And that made them computationally heavy on, on conventional computers. GPUs helped a little bit, but not much, because these neuronal networks, they were highly recurrent. They were modular, so there were individual modules that were, had, were densely interconnected with recurrent connections. So their structure didn't really fit this architecture of a graphical processing unit. So running them in real time, what we needed for robotic applications, was difficult. We all were very interested in development of neuromorphic hardware, so hardware that supports neural network architectures and allows us to run them in real time with low power consumption. That's also important for embedded uh, computing on, on a robot. So I got interested in working together with neuromorphic engineers. And, and my first contact with them was in 2007 at the Telluride workshop for neuromorphic engineers. That's when I came. There were first chips were there. There were mixed signal analog chips, very small at that time. I think we had 16 neurons, the device with 16 neurons. And we use these concepts of attractor dynamics. Another name for them is winner-take-all dynamics, because this is in discrete neural terms, the connectivity structure that you need to establish in order to create these attractor networks. So we built little attractor networks and have shown detection instability, selection instability, have demonstrated the nice dynamical properties of this computational unit. We couldn't solve any challenging practical task with you know, 16 neurons, but we've started to develop proof of concepts that first the attractor dynamics is a useful framework for neuromorphic computing and that neuromorphic computing, if it will scale up and develop further, could also support our large architectures. So that was your first Telluride. And then how did you continue your involvement within the field? So for a couple of years, our involvement with neuromorphic computing was on, on the level of discussions. I would participate in Capocaccia workshop and in Telluride workshop, and each time we would develop small proof of concept architectures on hardware or also without hardware. So in one Telluride, I think we defined part of the workshop and there we just run our neuronal models. They were pretty large scale models. I think it was going in the direction of grounding spatial language and we didn't put them on hardware at the workshop there, but we discussed like future possibilities of that. So we tried to move towards each other and then tried to join INI, I think in 2011 after finishing my PhD. And, and that didn't, didn't work out just for practical considerations. So we continued just interacting through the workshops, meetings, conferences. And I joined INI in 2015 with the Marie Curie Fellowship. 
position. And, and I was very successful with getting grants because the topic was exciting. So my vision was to use neuromorphic hardware developed at ENI, mixed signal devices, which by that time grew in size. So my ferry device had 256 analog neurons with all-to-all -all connectivity that gave us some flexibility with the architectures and with a set of plastic connections. So this device supported learning on chip which was an important aspect for me because this continually, constantly learning and adapting systems is what I thought is required for robotic applications of, of this technology. And then there was also a Dynams chip at that time already, which had 4,000 neurons, huge for VLSI type of neuromorphic devices. So my idea was to put these devices on robot and to demonstrate that with the right programming framework, this attractive dynamics, even with the noisy analog hardware, with mismatch and so on, you can actually produce behavior in, in the real world and control the robot. So in my group, we would develop like small sandbox-like architectures controlling robotic vehicles with dynamic vision sensor on them. We had little pushbot robots, they were called. And we would implement something like a Breitenbeck vehicle, so very simple architecture that allowed the robot to follow targets and avoid obstacles. Then we made it a bit more complex and had some reference frame transformation to keep the memory of the target in allocentric reference frame. So if you move around, you still keep the memory of where your target was in your own direction, independent reference frame. Then we developed little head direction circuits, like mimicking this fly's head direction circuit, and try to scale that up to like a minimal slam architecture. Well, with 256 neurons, we had to zoom in on different parts of that architecture, but we have demonstrated that you can have the head direction circuit and then simple map learned on the robot in simulation and then in the real environment as well. Then we also had a little drone project where we have implemented low-cost giant motion detection neuron. It's a neuron that can detect looming stimulus. So we had four such detectors for four quadrants in the visual field so that the drone could avoid looming obstacle. So for all of these different robotic applications, you must have been developing some kind of programming framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? So I think that's that's a very like big and, and painful question in, in neuromorphic hardware because the hardware developers, they develop a, a new chip and this chip requires several layers of software. You need some kind of compiler and, and runtime and then you need some user API so that the software developer can then program neural networks into the neuromorphic hardware. And each hardware developer tends to develop their own software framework. And in academic setting, even each PhD students tend to develop their own software framework because the one from previous student probably had some bugs and was not optimal and it's just more rewarding to develop something like that from scratch. So when I joined INI there was a framework like that, I think it was called PyNCS. It was a Python framework that allowed us to control like all the parameters on the chip. So configure the hardware neurons in different configurations. So we built the library on top of this PyNCS framework. And then during the five years that I've spent at INI, there were a couple other frameworks that were developed. But we stick to this original framework that allows us to really control all the parameters on chip. So I like to really make use of all the possibilities that hardware developers give us. So essentially that means you're working at a much lower level. You don't want to lose control by going up to the abstractions that make it easy to program. Right, right. And at some point we of course need to move up in the in abstraction levels, but it's important that important characteristics of the hardware are still exposed and accessible on that higher level if you want to. 
So how did you get involved with Intel? So in one of the Telluride workshops, I think it was 2018, if I'm not mistaken, Intel was there and, and I came there just for one week. So at that time I was coordinating Neurotech. This is our community co coordination and support action from EU. And I was to give a prize there for the best project, I think. So I was there only for a week. I didn't plan to participate in any project. But Intel guys were there with their hardware, and, and I looked at the hardware. It was much larger than what I'm used to. It's no digital. And they also had a software framework, so I said, mm, I'll try it out. And the colleague that was there was really super talented. So in less than a week, in a couple of days, we had a little architecture tracking objects uh, in DVS, moving objects in DVS, and yeah, like controlling a little tracker. And I was amazed, like in a week, I had it working on the chip uh, in real time. Wow. So. And I haven't heard about Loihi before, so somehow it avoided me. And it was, it really blew my mind away. So I got you not know, talking to Intel guys. So we started INRC project, Intel Neomorphic Research Community. But then I started discussing with them if I could join them. The team was mostly in the US at that time. Moving to US was not in my plans. So after some negotiation, so Mike Davis suggested to strengthen or open up a new group in Munich. And that was close enough to, to Zurich, so we decided to do that. That's how I joined Intel. And less than a month after I've joined them, COVID started, unfortunately, and that made things a bit more difficult. So it made moving to Munich more difficult. Hiring people was difficult. So I think really actively starting work was a little bit delayed. Luckily, we still could hire students. So I started working with interns and building, building the, this research group at Intel in Munich. We were called applications research, so we were not contributing to hardware development. We were using the hardware and looking for promising applications and demonstrating that uh, these applications are possible. And at the very beginning, I think it was still 2020, we contributed to Intel Open Day event with two demos. So one with drone controlled by Loihi. It was just a one-dimensional drone, so just rotating on one axis, but it was tracking a horizon in front of it very quickly, very fast. So we had 20 kilohertz update rate and less than two millisecond delay. So working on chip end-to-end. -end. Yeah, I'm very proud of the student there. It was in collaboration with David Escaramuza here in Zurich. And the second demo that we developed in a heroic effort, I think, was on the ICAP robot in IIT. Uh, and we had an architecture that had a component with continual learning of objects, which then the student continued developing, and then we published the paper at Icons Got Best Paper Award at some point. But that was only one part of the architecture. Then we also had something like SLAM, learning a map of objects on the tabletop. So we have had spatial representation for objects on the tabletop. And then we had the neural state machine that would control the interaction between the robot and the human. So you know, the robot will look at an object, not recognize it, detect that, and ask human, what is it? I don't know this object. And we'll hear the answer of the human, we'll try to learn this object, then look for another object, not recognize it, learn it again, then look back to the old object, recognize it, oh, I think it's a cup. And then the user could correct it, no, that's not a cup, and then the robot would relearn it. So in a couple of months, we put together this architecture on Loihim. Most of it on Loihim, we had some components like attention was still running on, on the computer. And it was COVID times, so no travel, but no, I, I jumped in my car and went to, to Italy a couple of times to make the demo work. The demo worked. I think many components still need to be developed and matured. And, and, and I hope that we'll be able to, to finish that and to have this architecture really working and enabling the interaction. 
Now, my understanding is that part of your job at Intel was to help other people to use Loihi, particularly for robotics, and essentially to cultivate work with Loihi in the robotics area. Can you talk about maybe one or two of the projects other than your own that came out of that work? Sure. So first, a couple of words about INRC. This is this wonderful Intel's framework or program where they interact with academic and industrial labs all around the world. It's Intel Neuromorphic Research Community. And, and it started with a funded program. Intel has these funded uh, programs where they have some budget to fund projects in academic institutions at the universities. And Neuromorphic Group wanted to do that as well. They made a call for projects. They had a lot of applications. We could only fund a handful or maybe five, but there were many more interesting projects. So they decided to open up their ecosystem of cloud access and allow people to try out different workloads on Loihi without paying them for the research because they wanted to do it anyway. So this is how this community started. And over years it grew, I think today it has almost 200 members. Many of them are quite active. So when I joined, I naturally became responsible for projects, especially in, in Europe. Uh, my personal interest was of course in robotics, so especially supported these projects in robotics. The most interesting ones, maybe two are particularly fascinating. One into Dell, Guido de Kroon. He is a very famous person in aerospace, so in flying vehicles, micro vehicles, so really ultra lightweight drones, insect inspired. He worked on robots that had morphology that is insect inspired, but also compute. And on Loihi, he implemented the architecture that allowed drones to land softly and, and naturally using bee-inspired, biological drone-inspired algorithm, looking at divergence of the Okay, and for optical flow of the visual features in the visual field and controlling the landing by that. So he had a really tiny architecture running on Loihi on the drone controlling this landing maneuver. This is one example. Another example is work from Queensland University of Technology in Australia. Tobias Fisher, he was working on place recognition. Place recognition is this recognition task which is very challenging because a robot needs to go around in fairly large space and then recognize places. And it's challenging because many places look very similar while being different, while the same place can look very differently, like in different weather, different time of the day. So it's a really challenging task. And, and he strives to have a very simple architecture that allows you to do that. So we've moved this project forward a lot in one of the Telluride workshops, where we had a group of people spread all over the globe working on different components of that. So we had a very simple and lightweight feature detector that detects features that allow us to discriminate between different places. And then we had aggregation of different places stored on, on chip, and then an architecture in place that allows us to have this search over the stored places and find the one that I'm perceiving right now to be able to localize myself. And then like, we have some sequence matching to make this process more robust. We're still working on the paper. Working on the paper with the team spread all over the globe is not easy. <laughs> so I like these two pieces of work because now they're in robotics, they're in closed loop systems. This is where all the work on interfacing you know, sensors and motors to the chip had to be done to demonstrate the causal behavior. We have many other very active teams in, in industry groups um, in the US, in IRS space and in, in robotics, in large-scale computing as well. Wurtis is an institute in Munich that is very active also in robotics. We have a couple shared projects with them on controlling robotic arms with vision and then learning different skills with reinforcement learning.
Now, I know that you're no longer working for Intel full-time. You're still working with Intel, but you've got a new position. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, so this year, I got a professorship position at Zurich University of Applied Sciences. I'm leading a research center there called Cognitive Computing and Life Sciences. And then within the research center, I'm building now a new neuromorphic computing group. So in this group, I will continue developing applications using neuromorphic technology, sensing and computing, and targeting robotic applications. And then the life sciences component will be, on the one hand side, the inspiration, all the biological inspiration, but on the other hand side, applications of robotics in healthcare, agriculture, environment protection. So going in, in, into this sector where robots need to be more flexible and adaptive and more perceptive. So they need to be able to assess environment around them and then plan their actions based on that environment. So if there are humans moving around, they need to plan their actions around humans. Uh, so they need to act in dynamic environments. And, and for that, perception needs to be faster than what is possible with today's vision technology. Um, and also the robots need to be multimodal there. So they not only act based on vision, but also other sensors, you know, proprioceptive sensors, sense of touch. So we aim to create these very heterogeneous systems that use event-based computing principles, because you cannot like, sample with the right frequency all these different modalities. Some need higher sampling rates, others need lower sampling rates, and in many cases there's no like, meaningful sampling rates at all, but event-driven computing is what makes sense. So my goal is uh, multifaceted. So, so we start with sensing technology. So we want to develop a more advanced smart camera that is able to analyze environment in terms of present objects, their 3D positions and orientations. And then this representation needs to be compactly represented on the chip, but in a searchable way so that we can find objects that we know uh, in this environment. And then can link this representation to motion planning for the robot, robotic arms, mobile robotic manipulators, and then also do motion planning. So seamless integration of perception, motion planning and control. To arrive at this vision of uh, like very flexible vision-driven robotic actuators that can be soft, that can be calibrated on the fly using different modalities, no touch and proprioception, but also vision onboard vision and external vision. And, and we will use, uh, in terms of compute, different hardware systems that fit different aspects of this overall architecture. There can be some local compute close to the sensor, which could even be mixed signal analog chips that are very low power, always on devices. And then there could be a central compute, which is larger neuromorphic system, like Loihi or maybe Spinnaker. And then the art will be to design the software framework that can support all these different devices using principles of neuromorphic computing, which is you know, event-based computing, asynchronous computing, local computing, and um, interaction with messages between different modules. So you're really looking at the whole chain from sensor through the brain to the effector and all of the tools, essentially, that are going to allow you to do each step. Yeah, so this is, I think, is central to my vision for these neural architectures. And in this vision, perception cannot be separated from action. The perception serves action. So whatever I do in perception needs to match the time constraints, the precision that is required for action. The perception also needs action. 
So some sensing requires action, like for instance, event-based camera. If nothing is moving in the scene, but I need to refresh my memory, I, I need to do something like microsecart to, to generate events. So this active perception is also part of that. And then also I might want to perceive only part of my visual field. So I need some attentional processes that will direct my you know, focus of attention into different parts of the visual field. So perception is also active, so it requires action. And then learning also requires both perception and action. So for learning, I need to plan some movement, anticipate what will happen after I'm done with this movement in order to then derive the error. If I have done this movement and something else happened, then I can derive an error that allows me to learn. So I think it's inevitable to take care of both perception and control in one system. If one wants to develop this adaptive, learning, flexible AI systems. Can I ask you before we close, I was interested that you said you were working on more advanced cameras, or at least that's one of your projects. I've been quite interested to see the fact that event cameras, though they have a nice set of properties, they have a lot that wouldn't be ideal for robotics. Can you tell me the kind of features, without going into too much detail, that your new chip would have on it? So at the moment, I envision to build on top of event-based camera, so use event-based chips that are out there. But for robotics, what we need are 3D locations of things in the physical world. Event-based camera is a 2D sensor. So the first thing that we need to somehow get to this 3D information. And there are different ways how we could do that. We could do multi-view geometry, stereo vision. We could use depth from motion algorithms. So if we move the camera in certain ways, then we can extract the depth information. Or we can inject some light into the scene, do some structured light just to support the calculation of depth. So there are ways how to get depth, but how to get it robustly on different distances with resolution that is fine enough. So there are many technical challenges to get there. And another question, if we have 3D information, how do we compactly represent it? Because like in 3D space, the number of voxels that we need to represent the space, if we just do it in Cartesian ways, just too many. So we need some compact representation, which is still searchable, so that in this representation I can find some objects that I know. So for me, the big question is how do we work in this 3D space? How do we represent things in, in 3D space? Because this 3D spatial information is what is needed for robotics, less than just labels that describe a picture. And also 3D information requires calibration. If I have multi-view geometry, I need to constantly make sure that the alignment of my cameras is how I expect it to be. If I'm on a mobile you know, camera and I arrive at some table, I also need some anchor points in order to really translate you know, some pixel information into millimeter in 3D information. And this calibration needs to be uh, updated and checked once in a while. So this consistency check is something that needs to run in the background all the time. And, and this is, I think, a very fundamental computation that our cortex is constantly doing, this consistency check in time. That's what I expect happen or not. And in space. So do all the features, all the channels of information that I have, are they aligning uh, all the time? So I think it's a kind of nice field where one requires this brain-inspired algorithms or mechanisms and where one could try them out and test them. Yulia Sandomirskaya, thanks for coming on to Brains and Machines. And I hope that we can have you back in a couple of years to talk about the work that you're doing in your new job. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sunny. Yulia has done such a lot. 
it was really interesting to hear her story, particularly related to Gregor Schooner. For more about Yulia's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. Now, we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Julia. Good to see you. One thing that I'd like straight to ask to Ralph is exactly related with embodiment in vision. So Kevin Gorigan is a psychologist who proposed the sensory motor contingency theory. And he's working on the representation, the fact that we think and we believe that we have a representation of the scene, a representation like an image. But actually what he's saying is something that is related to the importance of embodiment, is the fact that the vision is a, a visual exploration as much as any other senses. So what's your view on embodiment, on what Yulia was saying, and also on this specific question that I asked myself from the vision point of view? If I understand your question correctly, the, the notion of, of visual embodiment is the idea that we are involved in the scene that we're seeing. And basically, we're doing active vision and motor output that changes the information that we get through our action itself. I think that is clearly something that is super important in the way that we interact with the world. If each time we take a different position, a different pose, a different view of the world, that affects the next action that we take, right? Because we're going to, you know, if you're going to grasp something that changes our hand position, if you're going to move to a certain location that changes our heading direction and so on. It goes back for me to the sensing, perception and action loop, right? You are seeing, you understand, and then you act. And that action then leads to the next sense, to the next perception and the next action. So that is super important in everything that we do in terms of robotics, I believe. I wanted to throw something in on this. One of the reasons I find Yulia's work so profound is that I think the dynamical system stuff that she works with, which comes from Gregor Schoener, I think it's very important because it gives us the idea that the brain, the body is part of an evolving physical system. And of course, Yulia is another physicist, as we've discussed in previous episodes, a lot of us physicists around. But that idea that we're an evolving physical system, we have internal dynamic attractors that keep us doing one thing and move us on to doing the next thing. But as all fractal, chaotic systems can be easily bumped out and moved on when the right set of stimuli come along. And I think that's very deep. And it's one of the things that we've discussed in the past about embodiment is this idea that it's not just about a Turing machine and in fact, my background in terms of my PhD was all about objecting to the idea that all machines are Turing machines, that as soon as you have something interacting with an analog environment, it stops being a Turing machine because too many different things can happen. You can't control everything in a matter of bits, in a matter of incremental, very discrete steps. Instead, it's continuous changes, even if the internal system is somewhat digital. So I think the idea of these internal dynamical systems that go with the external dynamical system, I think that's quite profound. And I think that's worth stopping and paying attention to. 
to continue that notion that Sunny is articulating, maybe to put in a, in a little bit of a concrete terms is this. You may have multiple different percepts and action paired with those percepts that you can imagine as them being different minimums, different holes in a manifold, right? So what happens is we basically move around these manifolds and then based on what we're seeing, based on what we're acting, we fall in one of these attractors and then we stay in these attractors, we perform the associated action that comes along with it. But the moment that that's been achieved, it basically pulls us out above the minimum, pulls us up on the ridge again, and then the next attractor pulls us back in to the next action or the next behavior that has to happen. So it's this movement, it seems, out of the local minimum up to the ridge and then dropping into the next local minimum up to the ridge and so on. So the, I think one interesting thing for me would be locality again is where you are on the ridge you're only going to fall to the minimum that's closest to you right but are there really ways that you could come up with new creative pairings right where you were supposed to be on this side on the right hand side of the manifold but all of a sudden you appear like a wormhole over to the right side of the manifold and then you get another different unexpected pairing that might be something that opens our mind into a new idea a new action a new perception and so on that is an interesting diversion from what i would classify as simple tractor i move i get pulled away from that attractor and the tractor pulls me back which is one of the stable points that julia was referring to but to have creativity as well as being part of that notion of being able to jump to a different part of the manifold. So actually, this brings me to the uh, one of the questions that I had. What she's doing is an heroic effort <laughs> of making a robot to do everything that is needed to actually react to external stimuli in the scene. She's talking about death. She's talking about uh, attention. She's talking about like perception, not just vision, but also touch, also the multimodal sources of information that you need to merge. And then you need to understand what to prioritize. It's still the same problem. So I think unless she will define in each environment a specific task, this problem is too big to be solved in one go. But she's a tremendous scientist, so I think she will know better than me how to deal with it. I strongly think that she will probably break it into different problems, and then one day we will understand and how to merge these things together and to understand, to prioritize the actions and the decision-making in the goal. So I'm very interested in the chain of technology and whether we're, for instance, sticking entirely with neuromorphic sensors and then going into neuromorphic processors or some other kinds of processors and how that chain looks and where you're changing from one mode to another, if that makes sense, where one mode of representation to another. And one of the things that we talked about uh, at Telluride was the fact that she feels that at least for the foreseeable future, that is not homogeneous. So it's not one problem. Just as you say, Julia, it's not one problem. It's lots of small problems and that you're going to think of it as being modular. All of these little pieces that are the best to do that part of the job at a particular time. And then maybe as things go on, the language that all of these things speak will harmonize a little bit. But certainly in the short to medium term, she sees it as being lots of little optimization tasks, right? What is the best sensor? What is the best processor? What is the best thing to do uh, sensor action coordination? These may all be very different kinds of modules and technologies. So I think we've seen that trajectory moving forward since probably the late 90s, early 2000s. 
So if you think about even the walking robots that, for example, uh, Anthony Lewis did, where you have particular movement actions influenced by the obstacles in which it collides and which pulls the uh, dynamical system away from its nice limit cycle pulls it a different direction. And then as it passes, as it gets over that obstacle, then it goes back to maintaining walking. So this is an embodiment of a dynamical system that is particularly useful for walking. And this was purely robotics, right? Purely looking at the robotical system. Then you step forward to mid 2010s and then we started thinking about, okay, how do you use that to restore locomotion in a person with paralysis? So then you go back and now you think about the circuits in the spinal cord and construct essentially these attractor networks with half-centered oscillators, with inputs coming in from outside with the different touch and extension and, and pressure sensors. And that is what maintains the limit cycles. And again, now when a person does not have the ability to walk, then you provide inputs that would be the same as the downward input that would have been coming from the brain if there was no spinal cord injury, right? And that basically moves the dynamical system from different minimums and brings it back and gets the action that is required for moving the limb from one place to the other and so on. While this has not been implemented in its fullness in humans, but it's certainly been done in cats. And this is the work of Vivian Mushawar and company that I also helped with. And we did the silicon side of it, right? So we build full analog networks of neurons that would be able to implement these half-centered oscillators and ends up being the dynamical models that, that Yulia is talking about. So what I wanted to say is I love all that stuff. And I've written for EE Times about that, that particular work that you just talked about. But along with all of that more scientific CPG work, and I'm saying that in contrast to what I'm about to talk about, Mark Tilden did a lot of work which was less scientific only in the sense that I mean it was less explainable. My recollection when he used to be part of the community back in the day is everyone said it is amazing what he can do with robots, but nobody really understands how it works. And if you ask Mark, he can't quite tell you, but he can make one and he can help you to make one. Is that about accurate? Yeah, exactly. What, what do you refer to as a nervous net? That's right. Nervous networks. Exactly. Which I think actually, I have to say, I think the nervous networks paper, which was from, oh, I want to say early 90s, like 95, maybe the nervous networks paper was possibly my first analog computation paper. You know, I'd been all optics all the time up until about that point. But that one really changed the way I looked at technology. What I want to say about all of this, though, is that there's a problem of complexity and that I would have thought, having sat with it for 20 years, that the problem with these central pattern generators is trying to get them to do complicated, sophisticated tasks, not the kind of tasks that we think of salamanders doing, like with alky icebergs or... Oh, no, lamprey. Yeah, the lamprey. That they were doing it, that was Maryland, right? They were doing yeah, not Avis Cohen. Yep. Avis Cohen. And I think that's the point that she was making is it would be lovely. And, and I'm of that purist background of thinking that you should be able to do this. It would be lovely to be able to incorporate this into one system where all of the things are just happening physically like dominoes being knocked over, where one thing causes another. 
But how do you create a system that complicated that will do all of the things that you want? That's what I was trying to get at. So I would argue that it's not as simple as we say, as being articulated. You look at the networks in a cat's spine that's responsible for muscular contraction and extension and so on during walking. And it's, it's big percentages of the spinal cord, right? It's not two cells here and there, right? So that complexity is represented along just the, the network complexity itself. However, I do agree with you that ultimately that is controlling a particular part of a complex system, which basically says, I want to get from this part of the room to the other while stepping over these objects in my way. So that requires vision, requires planning, requires mapping, requires all of these steps. And then, of course, as you go along, each time you take a step, your dynamical system moves for a different location. And you got to either bring it back to just walking yeah, until you get to that obstacle where you go to a different space in the manifold and you implement that space and you come back or something to that effect. Right? But something has to be able to, to pull the, the, the point of attractor in different locations so that your desired movement, desired activity, desired outcome is actually achieved. And that's the hard part, right? Is whatever that desired outcome is. Yeah. Exactly. And We do need this idea of hierarchy and there being different kinds of systems and those systems being optimized in different ways. And maybe we have central pattern generators here, but we're using large language models over there, starting to understand and and get to grips with how they all fit together. I think that idea of heterogeneity is really good. And it's the way technology works, right? It's the way mainstream technology works. But I think we always have to be thinking on the neuromorphic side about how we plug into what's already there and how we make ourselves digestible to the big wide world of technology. The fact that this is EE times, so they're interested in the hardware, in the electronics, and so on. And the fact that she's thinking about how to implement all of this on a physical platform like Loihi, like Dynapse. Dynapse, yeah. The stuff from, from Zurich or the stuff that we've done here at Hopkins. I mean, that makes it a real system that takes advantage of the electronics at hand. And then now, as we move forward and we get into MISTERS, we get into other types of computation platforms, right? Can the algorithms or can the ideas such as, like we say, the uh, dynamical systems, can they map easier to other implementation of neural systems? Can it be uh, more easily mapped onto that? And then you take it even one step further, which is when you bring in living tissue, because those dynamics exist there as well, right? That relationship between an artificial system and a living system working together in conjunction in order to move the, the, st- the stable point as needed in order to achieve a task that you want. So I think there's a lot of really rich stuff that, that Julia is doing that brings in all sensors, all actions, and then all that, that layer of how do you make that translation from action to sensing to action and looping back on, on itself. Yeah, and I think this is a gigantic effort in a gigantic problem, which I do like to see that is will be solved. Also, because she mentioned that we have uh, many frameworks, I do agree. We have too many frameworks in terms of software and, and hardware. And she talked hardly also about depth estimation. And I worked with depth estimation using the Mar and Pojo cooperative stereo matching model. And it's a gigantic effort there too, because you need to take into consideration that if you want to bring this into the reality of the games, so into the hardware, 
problem. It will be difficult because of the scalability of the hardware. That is actually what she mentioned, right? So it's a big effort. Yeah, then suddenly, and she mentioned all the different ways through which depth can be computed. But there's yet another layer on top of that, and this is a subject of a recent paper, which is to do with how does attention play a role in depth? So we talked about attention as being a gate. Now we pay attention to some things that are closer to us, things that are farther from us, maybe we don't, unless it's coming directly at our head or something. But how do you take advantage of all those kinds of things and put that in the model as well? So yes, it's a big problem, as you indicated. I think that's a great place to stop it for today. Thanks, Sunny, for another great interview and Ralph for your insightful comments. In our next episode, Sunny will be taking a break from interviewing and I will be talking to Professor Guillermo Gallego from the Technical University of Berlin, exploring the world of event-driven cameras. As usual, we hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our guest, Dr. Yulia Sandarmiskaya of the University of Zurich. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms. But if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Alex Hawley at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.